Welcome to the Q. Conversations in digital media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Our next episode is queued up and ready to roll. Thank you for listening. You're in the queue. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the queue, Conversations and Digital Media. Uh, we had a great, great guest today. His name is Matthew Gusson. He's the National VP, head of MSP at Amobi, one of the largest exchanges that you can uh, in the programmatic space and do a lot of different work. Um, they're able to get a lot of data, and Matthew was able to discuss that with us. Uh, he's a really cool guy from Southern California, did some TV background sales, uh, actually started in the radio side of things, promoting at uh, DJ events and things like that, uh, but then entered in within the digital space and has been a really, really big for, uh, front runner in terms of a thought leader in this space. Um, has been working with Amobi for many years, and their technology and what we talked about uh, was a lot about, uh, they're one of our uh, main exchange partners. So if anything you hear inside this and you're interested in, whether it's out of home, digital, or OTT, any of the programmatic stuff and how the, how you granular can get to target that potential audience, definitely reach out to Q1 Media because they are one of our partners. Uh, you can reach out to Q1 Media at q1media.com. But it was a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. This is Matthew Gusson. All right, Matthew. Thank you for joining us in the queue. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me in. Yeah, yeah. So is is this this is like your you've been to Austin several times, right? Yeah, I love this town. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's unique because it does have the LA vibe, which I know you're coming from. Uh, and I always ask people, so you know, what's your what's your favorite food? And I and I and then I'll ask you later if you've actually been able to actually have some Austin tacos yet. <laughs> All right. So my favorite food, and this is probably very LA, is sushi. Oh, yes. Love uh, some good spicy tuna roll when yep. I have the opportunity to get that in Albuquerque. But when I come to Texas, I'm about my barbecue and sweet tea. Uh, and uh, <laughs> The big totally, glass of sweet tea, too. Absolutely. The big glass and a couple refills on that. Yeah. Uh, I drink my Tito's, too, when I'm out here yeah. and kind yeah. of assimilate. Uh, I love the culture, the good music, yeah. and you can find it on almost every co- uh, corner. So uh, any chance I get to come out here, uh, I really enjoy spending a little bit of time. That's good. So the barbecue war is kind of big. Have you, what, what's your favorite spot here? You know, I haven't, I'm, I'm kind of partial on Salt Lake, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Can't go wrong with those guys. And uh, even if I have a few extra minutes at the airport, I'm definitely going to take one for the flight home. Yep, I know. That's then they open that there. It's it's kind of interesting. You the the original Salt Lake is amazing because you get the you know scenery and the views, but now that that's there, it's like you walk by it, and if you're going into any of those gates past it, you're like, okay, I have to get I have to get this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so you're from the West Coast. Uh, where 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 are your folks from? Where'd you where'd you uh, where'd you land? Uh, born and raised in Southern California. I'm actually a first generation Californian which is pretty rare uh, for out there. My mom's from Chicago, a little town out in the outskirts called Skokie, Illinois. Uh, And then my dad is from Toronto, Canada. So I have unique dual citizenship uh, access uh, to Canada as well. so it's kind of interesting. That's good. So yeah. what were you what were you into growing up? I guess I know you did some radio stuff and some broadcast in your day. You know, uh, really into sports. I think my core back in the day was baseball. Uh, did a lot around that. My parents were uh, a little obsessed at a, at a moment with thinking that I was going to be a prospect, and 
They had me taking ballet so I could become more flexible. They had me working with uh, a pitching instructor to make my arms stronger because I was playing third base and first base. And uh, I think that discipline and that structure really was the foundation that led to a lot of my success uh, in the rest of my career because it taught me the hustle and the work uh, discipline that I really needed to stay focused and continue to drive even when things got difficult. Um, yeah. Which has been, you know, I think one of those things that helped shift my entire life uh, moving forward. Yeah, the well, baseball is an interesting sport. You're right. It's like the discipline of that sport probably more than any because mm -hmm. you just got to be ready whenever the ball comes your way. And you got to be mentally focused yeah. in at all times, even though you're maybe not even being utilized. It's, it's very crazy. True. And it's, a, it's also something else you don't think about, too, but it's a true team sport. The dynamic of it, not any one person can get the results done. So being a thought leader and actually caring about the well-being of others, it's that camaraderie and a lot of the other parts of that that then also lead to how you work together and how you guys assist each other, even making double plays. And there's a lot of things that then even lead to fist bumps in Salesforce today, right? So I try to embrace a lot of those and create analogies from my youth, from different sports figures that I've idolized and uh, went down that path to incorporate that into my day-to-day. -day. Who's, your, who's your team? So uh, Dallas Cowboys, interesting enough. Oh, football. wow. Okay. Uh, I didn't have a, a football team in L.A. And yeah. so growing up, I watched UCLA, the Bruins, mm -hmm. and their quarterback was Troy Aikman. And so ultimately when he got drafted by the Cowboys, I followed him on and became a huge Cowboys fan. Uh, Emmett Smith and all those guys. Yeah. And I've met Michael Urban several times. Really cool dude, kind of crazy but cool. Uh, they call it America's team for a reason. They're they're definitely. But I know there's a lot of people who might listen to this and be like, oh God, Dallas. They do have their uh, their you know people. It's easy to hate them. <laughs> you know, I, I take them you know with the good and bad. Yeah. They, everybody calls them America's team, but was the last time they actually won anything. And so I think a true fan can ride with them even in these hard years. Not a huge Jerry Jones uh, fan when it comes to how involved he is mm -hmm. with the day to day of the team. I wish he would let the coach coach and. He would just be more of a, uh, you know, a figure, um, and, and not just so much of that involved owner. Yeah, he's kind of the guy you, you you. That's just the entertainment value, and then also he he really does lead the message in certain ways that you're like, why did he say that? But he's kind of genius with the PR stuff. So I I don't know how he does it, but he yeah. still gets away with it. I don't know. He's there's nobody like him. Uh, so yeah, you went off uh, to college, and then um, yeah, it sounds like you did some broadcast work, and then you entered into the TV space that way, right? Yeah, I kind of had a unique experience. Uh, the entire time I was in college, I worked for a duopoly radio station. In Los Angeles, it was Power 106 and 93.9, the country radio station. So I always called it the best of both worlds. Uh, I did everything. I was a jack of all trades. I would answer the phones. I would host overnights. I would DJ. I would do clubs. You name it. I, you know, there wasn't anything I wouldn't do. Um, but one day, uh, I was hosting a live broadcast outside of a uh, like shoe store and all of a sudden this old gentleman comes up to me and I start having a conversation with him about our business and what we're doing and why we're out here and why we're broadcasting live and the opportunity for different businesses to expose their brand well the guy was really nice I answered all those questions took about 20 minutes off of my time and pause from what I was doing he gives me his card and I was doing a Power 106 event, so this was a hip-hop event that I was doing at this moment. The guy's business card said CEO Boot Barn. <laughs> so I, wow. I call him up, 
the next week and said, hey, just obviously, you know, I'm not in sales. I wanted to follow up and see how I can help you. You had a lot of questions. Potentially, I can put you in touch with one of my salespeople. And he goes, no, no, no. I want to work with you. I, I like you. I trust you. Here's what I'm looking for. Put something together. So I put a package together for a million dollars for the next year. Right? So he'd have a presence for the, it's not that much when you think about it, about $80,000 a month. Uh, and he bought on. So my next commission check, I'm making you know, a little above minimum wage at this time, doing everything at the radio station. My next commission check was like $35,000. And I was like, no, 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 something's wrong here. I went to HR immediately. And I was like, here, no, take this back, please. I don't want this to get You're the only, back. only salesperson in the history that would have done that. I wasn't a salesperson at this moment. Yeah, yeah. Never, ever experienced that. And because of that success and because of that moment, that shifted my career for the rest of my life. I stopped caring and wanting to you know, be that radio disc jockey and doing all of that. And I said, you know what? Somebody can go be that figure. I'm going to figure out how to get this whole thing, this whole machine actually moving. And shortly thereafter, my boss at that station, Val Mackey, who's the general manager of all of MS Communications, um, introduced me to people at ABC Television in New York. And I interviewed with 13 executives in New York, how to go fly out there on my own dime. And that was my next evolution, shifting in the early 2000s from radio to, 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 to TV. To sales, really. Yeah, right? to I sales, mean, yeah, really, more went... than anything. Well, the thing that I think people, you know, they forget is it doesn't matter, like sales, you don't, you can't go to sales college. You can go take seminars and learn things, but there's not like a, it's a, it's not a, it's a trade you can kind of learn, but then it's not, it's like anybody can learn and be like an English major or uh, a psychology major and become a salesperson. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not like something that's like pigeonholed you can figure this out you know or this person's going to be that person um so within the tv space you got your tv chops i mean how is that back i mean still tv was king uh probably in the mid 2000s time frame yeah at this yeah. time it was incredible mm-hmm. uh you know i started off i was probably 15 20 years younger than my nearest peer in this training program i signed a four-year contract with abc that tiered me out for the next four years so i knew exactly how much i was going to get paid each mm-hmm. year but the one downside was if I left early, I actually owed ABC money because they felt they invested so much into this training program mm-hmm. and into my time, I was their property basically. Right. Um, so after I finished six months of this training program, I thought I was getting shipped off to Detroit. That's, they could have placed me in any market and that was the other caveat. Yeah. A couple days before Thanksgiving, I get a call from uh, one of the presidents of the company and he goes, hey, one of our sellers quit in Los Angeles. You like to move back, but we're not paying for your flight. And this is how I, it was like that little nugget. I was yeah, like, no, yeah. no, it's okay. I got you. We're, I'm going to go back to LA, Detroit. And I'll forfeit my, uh, you know, rent and everything or, you know, yeah, move yeah. back to LA. Uh, but the next four years working at ABC was a lot of fun. We call it spots and dots because, you know, eventually in certain markets and certain DMAs, you don't have the opportunity uh, to go out there and do something exciting. You have to go work with every company because there's not enough rating points available. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And you gotta, you got to make up GRPs and you got a lot of under-delivery. There's preamps. I mean, there's yeah. uh, during political time frame. Those are, yeah, the TV space is ridiculous with that. Yeah. And then I guess that's, you know, kind of 
you learning that side of things also helped you work, learn, you know, probably reaching frequency, creative messaging, branding. How were you working pretty closely with companies on that stuff? I was, I, yeah, I did a lot of their messaging. I would help come up with their entire creative portfolio and suite. Mm-hmm. We'd figure out what day parts made most sense for them. Uh, we'd then figure out fringe brakes. If they wanted to be close to prime, we'd buy the 758 brake versus buy an 802 because you'd get that lead in or you'd have the lead out dollar going into early news or late news to kind of create savings. So it was really becoming more strategic with them to create the efficiencies with their budget if they wanted to try to obtain higher rating points and overperform for what their campaigns are. But you know there was limitations. You, you had uh, issues getting down to certain zip codes and certain you know the best you can get was DMA level at that point. Uh, and, and then you have to become reliant on cable companies to fill in those gaps. And that's where television just had a lot of voids and challenges. And you could buy a program that you know skewed pretty well and females 25 to 54, but you know you couldn't necessarily target you know mm-hmm. say a certain area. And it's just it was difficult. Yeah, that's that's a difficult challenge with the TV space. It so. still trips me out to this day that Nielsen is this 800-pound gorilla. Their panel is only 250,000 people total in the United States, mm-hmm. and they literally are what greenlights shows and keeps people's livelihood either going or not. So it's kind of insane when then you think about different measurement services in the digital space that are available to this day that people still sometimes say, hey, are you sure that's accurate? And we're now talking millions Mm -hmm. versus hundreds of thousands, but there's still that kind of, it's digital versus TV. And so that's kind of the interesting philosophical challenge as I've seen the shift, because I've seen both worlds I've seen programmatic and I've seen traditional, and I see the impact of both, but with now switching over to digital and doing that for the last decade, you actually can drive tangible results where you hope from your television campaign or your radio campaign, that was the core reason that it drove that success. Oftentimes I had noticed things would get overcredited now, right? Because what happens is people see that television commercial or it's the first thing in the drop down when they go to convert digitally that they put there. So that's the other thing that I've recognized is having to have those conversations around accurate attribution and giving appropriate credit. Yeah, and digital's held to a higher standard in that way because it has been in the market of, oh, well, we can report on this. This Mm -hmm. is so... um, uh, the deliverables on the back end um, are so telling, and you can tell the the ROI from it. But TV is still held to that. Oh well, it's TV. It's still maybe a necessary evil for for branding. Um, but you're right. It's correct. It's like there's 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 that different standard. And with Nielsen, who for a, a, say a market size like Austin, two point five million, maybe around that greater Austin area that have um, you know uh, households. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's only eight hundred actual meters within this market measuring Nielsen's total scale in terms of how the currency is going to be (laughs) dealt with and who's number one, who's number two, who's getting the ratings and who's not. It's insane. And I challenge that even one step further. And this is where I hope something eventually shifts because out of those call 800 people, how many of them have lived in Austin 20 plus years and haven't been part of this new Austin and this evolution of all these migrations and people coming here? There's two different versions of Austin. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, your numbers and your panel data can be completely skewed and and not actually drive you your best results or best performance possible. And and sometimes it's almost doing you a disservice when you start going into diary markets. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. I guess um, so. You uh, work for Amobi, and obviously one of the biggest exchanges, you know, around. Um, with that data, I mean, you, I know your evolution into the digital side was, you know, probably from the TV. I'm sure you'll have digital back at the ABC affiliate, and y'all maybe sold banner ads on and, website uh, or. Yeah, it was like, one of those things. It would be like a companion banner. You yeah, you would go sell like a million dollar package, and you'd give ten percent added value on digital. There yep. was basically zero monetary value to it at that time. No CPMs or anything. It was just added value. Yeah, yeah. it's insane to think that they we came from just selling banner ads. And people are like, oh, this display ad, okay, whatever, that's yeah. cool. It's a 300 by 250 ad. And yeah, that's cool. Put it on the website. Maybe somebody will see it and click on it. And you're just measuring clicks. Like, hey, you got 50 clicks this month. And that was what you reported on. Yeah. Well, then now, from like then to now, it's the type of audiences you can segment and go after. Um, Amobi obviously works with many DMPs with that with to break out those data segments uh, explain that a little bit for people who don't really understand how yeah. that works well, well firstly a dmp stands for a data management platform and i think that's important when you just break that word down by itself data when you think about that it's anything that you have first party or third party first party data can be your crm which is your customer relation management it could be emails it could be uh, census data that you're adding into the mix there's a lot of different ways to get it there's uh, third-party data, which is behavioral related. There's a lot of different things that have already been created that tell us affinities about a person's identity, uh, sentiment, age, income, household, uh, different variations of what they skew, even all the way down to ethnicity. And so unlike television, when you are pretty much limited to household income and then age being your, your real factors that you can talk, uh, target from a granularity standpoint, that's just the baseline. We can add in all those elements and drill down so much further. And so the whole goal is to really understand what your KPIs are, key performance indicators, because then we can build a bespoke campaign that is truly unique to what your needs are. We're gonna go from taking the guesswork out to allowing the big data to help understand that your target audience is maybe a little bit more niche than you expected, but we're also going to help you find the hidden audiences that you never even realized were of value. True. And then, then you know, as far as how they get that data, uh, obviously it's whether cell phones, behavioral, your behavior on your phone, mobile from 2000, really smartphones, 2008 to like really now mm-hmm. is just been a huge driver. I just saw that mobile uh, usage uh, just passed uh, the amount of time people spend on TV. Um, so that's insane. I had the ability to be at Quantcast prior to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quantcast is probably one of the largest big data companies in the world. And their entire solution was based on pixeling sites and, and getting cookie data. And in the you know late 2000s, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, that was probably the best way to take information from a site. Uh, what that would allow you to do and access is what people like, what people share, what messages people are hovering, what content they're spending time on. How do they on. do that? Is it just through so, the cookies? Like they obviously they just pick up what people are doing, who go to that site, and then where they go after that? So with the cookie, you're, it's a tracking device. And this is what's evolved around data protection and privacy now. Mm-hmm. But at that time, it didn't exist. It's wild, wild west. It was definitely a wild, wild west. And it still is to a certain degree right now. Uh, you see the FCC and FTC finally kind of stepping into the mix and saying, well, we need to put up some you know, guardrails to make sure that you know, seedy and malicious stuff doesn't happen. Uh, back then, anything, <laughs> it, was, it was up for grabs. 
And we really saw that. And so you would be able to collect anything down to location of their house. You'd know uh, people's email addresses. You'd be able to see when they open email addresses, emails. And then you can follow that email and retarget them on other devices. I know when you're on your desktop versus your mobile uh, phone. I know when you're on an app on your mobile phone versus the mobile web. And that level of granularity it just becomes incredible when you're targeting a person. And so it's very interesting because... When did advertisers start to pick that up? You know, and go, oh, wow. Like, that's hard to educate them, too, during that time frame. Mm -hmm. And go, look, we can do this. And you're working with, you know, big major, major agencies who need a programmatic buyer or a programmatic company to, to serve ads. Mm -hmm. And the space grew, obviously. Like, how hard was that back then to, like, educate these people? It was 2008, and I'll kind of set up the framework. Programmatic was in its infancy. Mm -hmm. There was roughly 250 million impressions available daily. That might sound like a lot uh, when I say that number. 250 million, okay? Fast forward to today, just on desktop alone, there's 50 billion impressions available. So we had scale issues, right? Not just even getting past that trust issue. If I got past that and can get them to even believe in this idea, we then had another challenge that I couldn't get it to scale. Mm -hmm. So it was okay in its infancy. Were you able to forecast scale pretty accurately back then too? Absolutely, yeah. because there wasn't enough supply and, mm -hmm. and people were afraid of programmatic at that moment. It's kind of like the buzz around native. We're not sure if it's good or bad. We're not sure if it's gonna take advantage of us or not right now. It's going through that kind of evolution as well. Mm -hmm. And that's something we definitely saw. Uh, and it took a while from that awareness. Was it mostly just display back then? Or what, did y'all have video? Was video kind of a big driver too? Or was that not until? You know, it was really display in 2008 through I'd say about 2011. Mm -hmm. 2011, 2012, video started to come into the mix and start to be requested. Then it also experienced the same challenges programmatically that I experienced uh, at the onset of programmatic from day one. Mm -hmm. But also at that time, other environments started to pop up in the mix that we were able to exploit programmatically. Facebook created Facebook Exchange. And when it first started, they had eight ads on a right-hand rail, and their ads were only 15 cent CPMs. Yeah. And this was a great way for companies to arbitrage and really make a lot of money in an environment that people were spending a great amount of time on. What, I mean, it, explain that a little bit. So when they, prior to their exchange, you basically just went through the Facebook directly, purchased these ads, and you had to maybe select a right rail ad, and that was basically it. And then when they started the exchange, then you could buy across audiences? How was... Well, when, you, when it started originally, Facebook mm -hmm. audience exchange then allowed us to tap in our big data. Mm -hmm. So then I was able to use algorithms and artificial intelligence to do all the bidding and decision making on their inventory. And I didn't have to use the manual thought process of a 20-something you know, year old trader who's going in there, doesn't really care, is watching his clock for it to tick and hit five o'clock and get out as quick as possible. That was kind of the fear, though, with programmatic back in like 2010 to 2013 is, hey, is programmatic going to kill the salesperson or the the person behind the, the thought of the campaign, the strategic approach? And I think that's, you know, that fear has died down uh, over the course of the years, but it's still kind of there. Like, hey, is this going to take the brain of somebody's, you know, the job? I think to a certain degree, people's jobs are going to disappear. I just think when you add in artificial intelligence to anything, there's going to be certain elements that need to evolve. It's just 
the natural evolution of sales, of mm -hmm. how we conduct business. We see that already happening from radio shrinking to digital radio to then television, right? Then television's getting killed by people streaming. There's a certain generation of Gen Z and millennials who don't even think about linear television at all. So it's all blending. And that's the thing that's happening right now. It's truly a convergence. And yes, it's very fragmented. And that's the thing that the next few years, I think, are really going to try to help us solve for is the attribution. So you can say, yes, I saw this digital out of home banner. And then I looked at it, you know, at home. Then I came into the office and I read an article on it at my desktop. And then I eventually converted. Maybe search for it on Google or something. Yeah, whatever. But there's a there's still the natural funnel like that right. never ends. There's still the awareness, which is you know branding awareness, and then you go down to you know like the Facebooks or Google mm -hmm. um, PPC, and that's definitely lower into the funnel. But it still works the same way. So, out of home, digital out of home is becoming major. Absolutely, and I'll just kind of round it out before we jump into yeah, digital yeah. out of home with Facebook, just to bring that point home. Is at that moment because they had all this inventory, right? And, and as I shared a moment ago, scale was a challenge. So this now helps solve for the scale issue. The CPMs were really, really inexpensive, 15 cents to a $3 CPM. What I would do to get people to at least test it out, I'd give them 20% added value of all their campaigns on Facebook. They'd see the performance. It was like crack at that point. And then the next thing I know, I was able to scale my budgets exponentially in an area that was growing. Yeah, you were getting so much reach and, and it was a specific audience and you could, I mean, Facebook's mm -hmm. audience segments were absolutely amazing. Like you mentioned, they've mm -hmm. kind of toned down their, uh, and they've over over the course of the couple of years with you know government, Cambridge Analytica and all that stuff mm -hmm. and the 2016 election, they have had to, you know, hone in on how many people you can segment, which is also another battle that I think a lot of advertisers are going through. The biggest challenge with Facebook as it had some core issues of its own is transparency. People don't feel like they have enough access to what they're doing, how they're investing their money. And then we are now being told whether you could apply even your own first party data, which is your data to go understand who your audience is on their website. And I look at what happened with Cambridge Analytica as something that could have been easily avoided. You probably could have driven the same exact results by just using a little bit more targeted media. You didn't have to use PII to gain those results. And that's the incredible thing when you actually look at it. I, I did an analysis um, last year post-election looking at how the dollars were spent uh, both from a Republican standpoint and a democratic standpoint. I wasn't looking at it, I was looking at a non-bipartisan mm -hmm. fashion here, and I just wanted to see how the money was spent and what kind of tactics were used. And when you looked at the Democratic Party, they decided that they thought their audience was everybody, all 50 states. Everybody was still their target audience. Their spend was five to one against the Republican Party. The Republican Party realized there were certain states that they were never ever gonna win, so why invest my budget into this? They started narrowing it down to specific regions, certain DMAs, certain areas that really, really, really mattered more than anything else. They took what you tell your clients all the time and used that strategy. And they used that strategy. So yes, you have a national budget, but don't invest it nationally. Be more particular so that you become more effective. Mm -hmm. And as we see, the person who used the big data strategy ended up winning. Yeah, it's insane. And that 
the fact that in 2016 the other party didn't realize that it's kind of kind of hilarious in a way. Well, you fast forward to even you know today, and you look at Biden and Trump. They're both at the same city today. It, you know, both campaigning. So yes, they they've recognized yeah. the light bulb has come on, and they want it to be the same sort of uh, playing field. So if you're going to use big data, we're going to now use big data. So it's one of these things that I believe that you must arm yourself with now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And then you know, going forward, things are going to change, so you have to adapt to that. Like this, that's what's really cool about the the digital space is it's always evolving. You mentioned earlier that the government is catching up. They're always delayed mm-hmm. um, with anything. I mean, you look at even Uber and the regulations with all that and blowing up on a different story, but still they're late on it. So there has to be some regulation, but the advertisers and you know people like you and I are going to have to figure that part out for these brands and these agencies who are relying on us to still be able to prove, provide results mm-hmm. in this, you know, like you said, like five, five billion, 500 billion impressions that are able to go around. It's ridiculous. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about, let's move into the OTT space. You mentioned earlier with TV. Um, we actually had Les Dobart on yesterday and, uh, he's, he's a part of a brand, you know, here within the, in a regionally, uh, a brand. And he was discussing, it's difficult for him to, he's has these, he has these relationships with TV, uh, account executives and stations and, uh, cable stations within the market. And they're all playing in the OTT space because they know where it's going and they're all like, Oh, we have to get this. They kind of were late to the ball mm-hmm. game, but he's like, man, it's kind of difficult to decide who to go with. Um, and when the, you've been in the programmatic exchange space, he's like, well, do I go with the person who's been in TV? Because they look at it as, look, this is our property. It's on TV. This is us. But then there's the digital people going, no, 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 no. This is a digital property, not a TV property. It's on it's true digital OTT, it's on Roku, it's on whatever else, and we can manage that inventory. Like, how do you, you know, go into a place and go, you know, look, trust us because we know the digital space. I really come in more so as a consultant. I try to educate along the entire process of pros and cons to both. Because I've been in both spaces, I try to obviously have a nice spin on why it makes more sense to go to digital, but oftentimes I share about the weaknesses. When you think about a a traditional linear plan, those guys haven't been versed in digital yet. Doesn't mean that they're not schooled and and don't realize how it can be beneficial and impactful for. Think the biggest question you have to ask your marketer is, what is your KPI, your key performance indicator that you're trying to solve? And then from there, I can actually build you your most well-rounded plan. And you may see that if they're looking for branding and they just need massive eyeballs, maybe television works because it's a fraud-free environment. Um, you're going to get 100% viewability in that landscape. But the trade-off is you don't know that that person's truly paying attention. You're being told they are. And when I think about how I watch and view television at my house, I have two, to, two devices on beyond my television at the same time, plus my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter distracting me. Yeah. So, <laughs> Which is a lot of thought. That's an American family right now. So you have to think, are you giving too much credit for TV in that moment? All of a sudden, I reach you on your device, on your cell phone, or your personal tablet. I'm now speaking directly to you. I'm giving you messaging, creative, whatever the product is that you truly care about. So people always say, well, I don't want to be followed. I don't want to be tracked. Well, isn't it a better user experience than something that has zero relevance following you? So to me, I'd rather have something that I'm interested in 
Um, and then what you get to see as the marketer, what kind of advertisements you like and don't like, if it starts to become too in your face, maybe you avoid selling those type of units. You, you know, It's up to you what kind of user experience you want to drive to your consumer. Yeah, so you really, it's, it's mostly you know the understanding of the data, how to use it, and how to strategically plan a creative around it, um, which is the old, I mean, that's just sales 101 or strategy, creative strategy 101, it's just implemented within the digital space, which is crazy that, you know, I don't know, the TV, they have their, their way in, they have the TV side, and they're just, they're scrapping, but the, the market share, unfortunately, with, you know, the amount of people cutting the cord is, is getting high, so it's going to catch up. The one factor that a television station has to a lot of these digital companies is name credibility. People know ABC, they know NBC, they know CBS, even if it might be owned by a third-party company. Those, those brands are recognizable. When we call from an Amobi or a Q1 Media, people might not realize our value. It might take us you know, a few phone calls and a couple emails to get past that barrier so that we can even expose our customers to what their real opportunity is. When we have that conversation with them, we get to highlight the opportunity beyond what they're already experiencing to continue to drive really substantial results, but then uh, like really delineate it based on performance and from there tweak it. And so when you start to show them and highlight how their dollars are going in and what they're getting out from it, it goes so much beyond just a click. And so, and also something that to even discuss too, as you mentioned earlier with the programmatic space when it first came in is, is scale. Mm -hmm. um, OTT is still developing, still growing yes. every day. Um, and then you can go very targeted and just go like zip code and then maybe yeah. audiences. As a, as a person who's trying to sell a campaign and pr provide ROI, there is a limit to that mm -hmm. in some ways because there's not going to be the scale. The challenge with OTT environment right now, it's so disparate, right? And what I mean by disparate is you have Roku, you have PlayStation, you have a Fire Stick, you have Apple Television. Chrome's, Chromecast. Chromecast, or... right? And each person has their own variation of measurement. Each person is only willing to share back so much information uh, that they have. Same thing with Hulu, same thing with Netflix. And so it starts to become very, very challenging uh, to understand how to invest money and which provider to spend with, right? And so then when you think about uh, DSPs or different companies that you want to tap into, you got to make sure that they don't only have access to the unique inventory, which then provides the scale. But if there's lack uh, lack of it, they have to have PMP, which is a private marketplace, to be able to tap into that inventory to give you the rest of that access. Uh, the last thing that people also get confused with and they oftentimes overpay for in the OTT environment is in-app inventory. Mm. Some companies will blend OTT with in-app and say it's one and the same and charge you high CPMs, but in essence, you're not really truly getting that. In-app experience doesn't mean it's not a good quality, but it's not being broadcasted across your television. Right, it could be cross-device, it could be on any other device that they have, and that, that's kind of how some players will, will say, oh, well, even on the lower end, they'll go, hey, we can lower our CPM, mm -hmm. it's because they're blending it, and you're not getting that true OTT, which is kind of, that should be fraud in mm -hmm. a way within this, within, this, within this industry, but there's still a lot of players selling it that way, which exactly. unfortunately for, as I mentioned less, the brand guy who's in Austin, Texas and Central Texas and working a regional brand, it's hard for him to discern that. Exactly. They're all saying, oh, it's OTT, and 
one rate's really low and then one rate's high and you're like, wait, you have to explain that. The education is, is very valuable. You have to, it's valuable. And so I try to do that from the offset in my conversation. Not everybody's gonna obviously buy into that, but if you don't buy into that, it's probably not who I wanna work with anyways. And when I get the opportunity to partner with an organization, I look at it as I'm earning a right to sit on the same side of the desk as you. And so your goals become my goals. And I wanna help you grow and see success together. And the only way that you're gonna scale is if I drive these numbers. And so, you know, OTTs, that space is growing. You talked about digital out of home. Let's touch on that a little bit because I know out of home billboards, that's probably the, the best way to describe, you know, what this has turned into. Yes. Um, you know, billboards being just the traditional, probably one of the oldest mediums of, of advertising, just putting up, up a sign that promotes a business. Um, now digital out of home, uh, we're talking, you know, kiosks that are now in airports, malls, now even just on the street. I was in New York recently and, and they have them all over the place, mm -hmm. um, which is insane. They just, on the sidewalk, they just took up space for you to walk to have these digital out of home ads. Uh, that space is starting to, to gain traction now. It's yeah, I think it's really in its infancy. Mm -hmm. When you look at out of home, before even utilizing the word digital out of home, you had the way that it started was you had a local guy who probably owned a few restaurants or a few other businesses start to put ads around there to try to promote driving in. As you saw small towns or small industries struggle, they started buying up more of these banners in these locations for pennies on the dollar. So what now has happened is a lot of these big companies, and there's hundreds of them, and that's also a little bit of a challenge, they have all this inventory, they have access to all this inventory. But they're not really digitally savvy, but they realize that things are coming over to this way and they got to figure out how to be more programmatic and how to become have a digital footprint. So there's been a few companies out there that have done a pretty good job trying to become um, SSPs, which is a uh, supply side. And what they've done is try to aggregate all these different inventory streams from these guys across the country, create a face or console access to it so that you can understand if I do, if I'm going to Vegas and I want to go promote uh, my product for CES, can I? And now you can. You can get it at McCarran Airport. You can get it at your hotels when you have the little screen as you're going up on your elevator. You can get it in the back of your taxi. And then you can definitely have it uh, once you get to the convention center. So you can really have a 360 presence with digital out of home. And then what you can do to tie that in with the retargeting aspect, because you know that this person's using their mobile device, they're playing in apps or in their SDKs, I can actually triangulate that and serve them other ads. Maybe I send them a discount for a beer coupon so that they go to a new bar and they go get a drink at a bar because of this discount. Maybe I give them a coupon for Starbucks. There's a lot of different ways that I can now reach this person in this mindset through my digital out-of-home messaging to then take that data and hit with other brands. It, it's maybe a little bit more interactive too. I mean, especially with, with people having mobile devices, being able to look at something up almost immediately um, rather than when you're on a billboard, you're kind of driving or you're doing something. It's not, you're probably not able just to look something up right away. So yes. I think digital out-of-home, you're in places like you mentioned, a hotel uh, elevator or the backseat of a of, of an Uber or mm -hmm. a taxi in Vegas, you're able to maybe do some research on it right then and immediately. So I think there is that immediate effect to it. You know, I think you gain the awareness mm -hmm. through the digital out-of-home unit, 
Because if you then take an action or you, you look up an article or you read anything with that influence, you're now also in another bucket. You're now a live cookie that can get retargeted for all these other things. They don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. That retargeting sometimes naturally happens and it's actually prospecting. When you then realize it's retargeting, there may be a four hour delay for some of these providers. There might be a 24 hour delay until they send their data and then you're reaching them. So when you complement the campaigns appropriately, you're gonna see incredible results. And sometimes I even see it as being a multi-pronged approach. Driving app downloads is so important. I think about like what ESPN Plus is going through. They just acquired UFC, right? And so they need to now not just bring awareness we have UFC, but we now need to drive people to download the ESPN Plus app and then pay for the subscription. And it's twofold. And so it goes back to what I keep going to, being that consultant. It's that education, sharing, and making appropriate recommendations so they see how you're helping drive their business forward. Yeah. I think ABC is going to be fine, though, regardless. Because <laughs> ESP, I mean, ABC, that's... Or yeah, Disney, yeah. Uh, ABC slash ESPN. It's ridiculous how much money they have, but they've uh, they'll they'll make it happen that way. And even though, as a user who had, had cable, I don't have it anymore. Um, have moved over to the the OTT side, and I have Hulu Live. It's really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll still pay the five bucks for ESPN, even though I probably don't get as much usage out of it as I you know as I would hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still going to pay that because I want to be able to watch live sports <laughs> when, I, when I'm on the go. And you just nailed something else that I think is really important. OTT providers expect you to have more than one service. They're not competing with each other. They want you to have Netflix. They want you to have Amazon Prime. They want you to have Hulu at the same time. This is really the holy grail of implementing what they're trying to solve for. I was just talking with a friend the other day about uh, the difference, also the reason why they're able to convert cable subscribers now there are obviously a lot of people coming into the the buying space gen zers who never had cable um who are going to grow this this side of the biz and kind of what we've heard um but with people who like are our age or older um who've had who were cable subscribers the way they're able to pull people in is they'll give you a free month trial and say look this is easy you already have access to this it's one click away Mm -hmm. and you start your free month trial and test it out where in order to do that with a cable provider, you have to call, wait for the five-hour window for the cable guy to come and set everything up, and it's just, it's archaic. And that part of the biz is, uh, it's, a, it's becoming obsolete. So, <laughs> it's, The other thing that we're also wanting is that instant gratification as a society. Mm-hmm. So if you have the ability to go pick up your new television from any store, it's a smart television, and you already have these apps baked in, you don't even need to wait, call up any service provider. You don't need to buy an Apple TV or wait for that to come in Amazon Prime or <laughs> whatever it is. Exactly. That's uh, interesting. So what's what I at Amobi, um, you guys are always on the forefront of, of things that are new. What what do you see on the horizon for maybe whether it's brand, whether it's brain intelligence, maybe it's just more data. What do you kind of see on the on the next five years and where things are gonna go? The industry is gonna continue to shrink. You're seeing that happen drastically and really fast. Uh, It reminds me of the early 2000s, once over. You're seeing these big traditional companies who might not really genuinely understand digital start to acquire digital assets. You just saw this with Disney recently acquiring Hulu. Who knows now what's going to happen to Hulu, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. The last thing that I think of when a big conglomerate acquired a company was MySpace, and that didn't end so well. Mm -hmm. So... Beyond that, uh, 
a lot of VCs are looking to get out of the industry right now. A lot of companies are for sale, um, ones that you wouldn't even think of. And then, as you've seen recently, a lot of companies are filing for bankruptcy, like Seismic, who has then been mm -hmm. picked apart by Amazon and Zeta, respectively. And so that's going to continue to happen. And inside the next five years, a few other things are going to happen. There's going to be more data regulation around your privacy and your concerns. There might even be ways for us as consumers to opt in to share our data and monetize it on our own. Uh, and be more educated, because I think that's it's taking consumers a while to be educated about this. And I don't know if we'll ever truly need to be fully educated. Um, when we download our phone, whether you use, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Android or um, an Apple user, you're still not reading your T's and C's. You're hitting go, right? You're downloading go. There's an update, yeah. download and go. You're not thinking about it. And every single time you're doing that, you're giving new, refreshed access to who you are. And you have to think, if there's 110 million approximate smart televisions, True Optic being one of the largest measurement companies measures 85 million already. Do you need higher granularity than that? Probably not. Their accuracy, it's epic, right? So what I see is happening, that might, number might shrink. The way that apps and how you opt in for data and what they're able to then share may change and how fast and the frequency of them sharing. And that was exposed last year from the Weather Channel. And when they were taking your data, then they were reselling it. Uh, and nobody was realizing that this was happening. And that's one of the most common apps that people have because they need to check the weather. Yep. It's, it's, and they have location service data, so they know where you go at all times, which yep. is insane. So I guess from a, from a brand or agency perspective, for what would you, I mean, obviously from a consumer side, you know, all the things you mentioned, but from a brand perspective, is there going to be some limitations to what maybe we had access to within the past even two to three years? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, obviously, with the crackdown on data, mm -hmm. what happens around pharma and certain areas that are a little bit more concerning around HIPAA, compli HIPAA compliancy and COPA compliancy as well uh, are going to be more important to be aware of. Uh, how you reach those people, how you target them is going to have to change. Um, your creative is going to probably evolve also. Uh, you're going to have to have different sort of messaging, more engaging maybe even call to action inside your message so that a person stays on the publisher that they already clicked into or that they're on and convert within that page so they never have to leave that environment and go to your domain. Uh, it's just gonna become that instant gratification, but fast and furious. Uh, what you're seeing is speeds and feeds also drastically improve right now, and that's been the biggest improvement probably of the last five years. The reason we didn't have more video in 2010 was because we were still buffering on our computers. Mm -hmm. Now, if you on your computer, if you're buffering, you look at a person and you're like, wait, you still have dial-up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now 5G is about to, it's entering into the marketplace, which is so quick. I know in Southern California, they've released it in a few spots, mm -hmm. uh, which is insane. So That's then from a streaming purpose, when you start thinking of watching in-app inventory when you're on the go on, or even watching on your television in your cars, I think screens are going to evolve. I think you're going to get a lot more viewership on different screens that are going to help you get access to that. Uh, but then the holy grail is whoever comes up with the most accurate attribution so that you can then delineate how you should put your budgets across all these mediums is going to be the winner. 
That's insane. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to change, and you know, it's cool to be at the forefront of it. So, well, Matthew, we really appreciate you joining us here in the queue. Thanks for coming in. Definitely, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you.